On December 11, 1963, Jomo Kenyatta came to Nairobi's Independence Arena to usher in a new era for his homeland. The ceremony to transition from colony to country had gone smoothly, but not perfectly, as the new Kenyan flag failed to unfurl upon replacing the Union Jack, at which point the Duke of Edinburgh, the representative of the crown, leaned over to Jomo Kenyatta and asked if it was a sign that they wanted to reconsider. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the fourth episode in a five-part series regarding the father of modern-day Kenya, Jomo Kenyatta. Episode 4, The Presidency. Kenyatta declined the offer to reconsider and then addressed the raucous crowd, visibly throwing his pre-written speech away when he reached the podium and speaking entirely in Kishwali rather than in English as the prior speakers had. He ignored all connections or thoughts of the Mau Mau, instead promising to seize the opportunity in front of them to usher in a new era of peace and prosperity. The next day, December 12th, became known as Jamhuri Day, their day of independence. His speech on the night of independence is one that he would repeat regularly as president. He sought to bury the past and pledged not to avenge past injustices. We are not here to look to the past, racial bitterness, and denial of fundamental rights the suppression of our culture. Let there be forgiveness, he said. The so-called leader to darkness and death would now lead Kenya by looking for peace and unity. Jomo Kenyatta's call for forgiveness was not typical for African nations decolonizing. Yale professor Amy Chua's thesis in her book World on Fire is that exporting democracy to a country with an entrenched market-dominant minority is a recipe for racism, civil war, and genocide. The market-dominant minority in Kenya were white settlers. At this point in time, they controlled 80% of the economy, despite having less than 1% of the population. Africa's experiences regarding decolonization fill the pages of Chua's work, with Rwanda's 1994 genocide standing out the most as the Hutus took out 50 years of anger upon the market-dominant Tutsis after their first democratic election. This is likely the example that most of my audience understands the best. Chua explains her thesis by pointing out that the Germans and then the Belgians favored the minority Tutsi over the majority Hutu, despite the fact that these designations had never existed before the Berlin Conference set off the scramble for Africa. 
These created designations merely served for the colonizers to divide and conquer the local population. They bought off the minority Tutsi, who had lighter skin tones and skinnier noses with high-level government positions, access to education, and land. The Tutsi came to embrace their role as the country's elite, in the same way that Jane Elliott, a social psychologist, found that the students in her study did when she appointed brown-eyed individuals over those in the classroom with blue eyes. As she empowered one group over the other, first by giving them additional privileges and then armbands, she found that the experiment quickly left the classroom, resulting in bullying and physical violence. Things seemed fine in Rwanda, if you were a Tutsi. The Hutu, however, were locked out of the financial and educational systems that resulted in wealth accumulation. At the time of independence, they, as the majority, won the democratic elections. Now the tables were turned, and the Hutus largely pursued policies that were in line with how the Tutsis had discriminated against them. Humans hate it when the table is turned, and we are forced to look in the mirror. Many, in fact, will shatter the mirror in order to avoid seeing their true self. Some Tutsis decided that they weren't willing to live in such a discriminatory world, forming a militia, which then justified the Hutu to utilize their state-sponsored military to begin the 1994 Rwandan genocide of the Tutsi. Professor Chua shows that this market-dominant minority model for genocide is universal around the globe and across eras of history. There are a mere two examples in Africa that don't fit nicely into her thesis, South Africa and Kenya. In South Africa, Nelson Mandela is given all the credit in the world for keeping South Africa from literally tearing their white settlers apart. Mandela goes down in history appropriately as one of the true great leaders for navigating the transition from apartheid through inclusion of the white Afrikaners. Jomo Kenyatta's ability to avoid bloodshed while democratizing may be even better, however. Mandela initially pursued peaceful means, but turned to violence in a way that Kenyatta never did. Unlike Jomo, who always held on to his innocence, Mandela confessed at the trial that sentenced him to a life of hard labor. I do not deny that I planned sabotage, Mandela told the court. I did not plan it in the spirit of recklessness, nor because I have any love of violence. I planned it as a result of a calm and sober assessment of the political situation that had arisen after years of tyranny, exploitation, and oppression of my people by whites. Unlike his South African peer, Kenyatta was framed and sentenced via a rigged process. Their time in prison may have begun via different paths. But both Mandela and Kenyatta emerged from prison willing to forgive and forget the circumstances that saw some of the prime years of their lives taken away through meaningless hard labor. So 
So why does Mandela get a Nobel Peace Prize, while Kenyatta remains virtually ignored in Western history? That has to do with how the two men diverged after coming to power. While Mandela stayed the course of democracy and tolerance, Kenyatta quickly became seduced with authoritarianism and cronyism. Kenyatta's political party, the KANU, had won a significant majority in the House of Representatives, earning 58 of the 100 available seats. The BBC marked the results by quipping that the only white candidate, Edward Hawkins, has lost his deposit. Kenyatta would serve first as prime minister before becoming the first president of independent Kenya in 1964. Although he was 73 years young when he ascended to the presidency, Kikuyu still referred to Jomo by the youthful-sounding nickname of the Burning Spear. He, however, had gained a new grandfatherly name from his people as well who had begun to call him Mzi, or Grand Old Man. He seemed perfectly placed to lead Kenya through this time of transition. At age 73, he wouldn't have been deemed long for the position. After all, he was already approaching the average life expectancy of a citizen who lived within the developed world. And after having lived the last seven years of his life under conditions that no one would find to be ideal, Kenyatta was seen as the perfect age to get Kenya started and then depart having built up the next generation of its leaders. His prior experience in the KCU and KANU had given him experience in Kenyan politics. As a member of the majority Kikuyu, and one who fought for traditional cultural practices, it was believed that he would represent the people of Kenya, rather than being the pawn of some far-flung international interests who understood little of the Kenyan people. However, his life in London and abroad meant that he had the ability to deal with international leaders. All new countries need outside assistance, connections that allow them the space and time to deal with small problems while they are learning to run. Jomo Kenyatta already had those connections. Indeed, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson wrote the following to the newly elected leader of Kenya. The United States, under President Kennedy, welcomed and supported the growth of free and independent nations of Africa, and American policy will continue along the same lines. Our ultimate goal is a world dedicated to peace and freedom. To help achieve such a world, we will continue to combat these age-old enemies of world peace, illiteracy, illness, malnutrition, and poverty. We also are deeply committed to the attainment of basic human rights by all men, and we are irrevocably determined to speed that process by assuring equal rights to all Americans as quickly as we are able. In essence, then, the United States is devoted to the same basic human aspirations as those of the people of Kenya, 
and indeed as those of people of goodwill throughout the world. To the courageous people of Kenya, the American people and I send the warmest good wishes as you enter into nationhood. Just as the infant United States was encouraged and strengthened by the sympathy of those throughout the world who loved liberty, so your young and vigorous nation will have the understanding and support of free men in every land. Good luck and fortune ahead. Looking back at Jomo's rule, though, the only thing that would be true in what I just told you would be that Jomo Kenyatta would find a good-sized fortune. Kenyatta showed his true dictatorial colors right away. He agreed with the former colonial leaders to the Kenyan new constitution with the full intent of changing it right after he was in power. This allowed the process to go smoothly, as his delegation agreed to compromise regularly with the British colonial government. He manipulated border skirmishes with Somalia, skirmishes that were either non-existent or ones that Kenyatta had started in order to achieve an expansion of presidential powers. Five months after taking office, Kenyatta's government introduced a law making it a criminal offense to disrespect the prime minister. The punishment for such a crime was exile. Policies like this conjure images of Turkey's dictator Recep Erdogan, who attempted to send a Turkish doctor to jail for a year after he posted a meme comparing the president to Gollum from Lord of the Rings. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, please go and look it up. The Photoshop work that was done might not be worth a year in a Turkish prison, but it is a joy to the world to look at the man's work. Streets and stadiums were named after Jomo Kenyatta, akin to how Stalin and Alexander each left behind multiple cities with their names on them. A bronze statue was erected besides the National Assembly, creating a physical reminder that Kenyatta was the government, rather than just a part of the government. Photos of Kenyatta became widely displayed in shop windows, the same way that Mao Zedong still presides over most rooms in China. His face was even printed on the new currency. Each was a physical representation of the status of Jomo Kenyatta. All of this imagery contributed to Kenyatta's personality cult as the victorious father of the country and the leader of the revolution. Everything new that was created pointed to Jomo as the victorious hero of the revolution, despite the fact that it was all undeserved. After all, he had not started Mau Mau. He had not worked behind bars for the betterment of the society if he were ever to be released. He had not chased the British out. He was merely the beneficiary of a rumor that he had never chose to directly correct. He even allowed for the creation of a new holiday called Jomo Kenyatta Day, which was to be held on the date that the original emergency was initiated by the colonial government. While many Americans likely shrug at some of this, 
Keep in mind that we had only begun deifying George Washington after he had left power. And unlike Washington's farewell address, which made it clear that leaders should not hang on to power, Kenyatta would never say goodbye. Impressively, like Nelson Mandela, he did have a multicultural cabinet, including two white senior advisors with most of the different ethnic groups represented. This signaled to each group that Kenyatta wasn't looking for vengeance or reprisals against those who had wronged him. This was mostly practical, however, as he didn't want a group alienated to the point that they pursued violence against the new government in the same way that Mau Mau had occurred. The bottom line was that the most important posts were packed with members of the Kikuyu tribe. In 1964, Kenyatta looked like the perfect compromise candidate for Kenya's first president. Heck, I probably would have been among those who had voted for him. At the advanced age of 73, he would be a short-term transactional leader along the way to a functioning independent government. He was experienced with the world and culture of European politics. He had spent more than a decade living and studying in England. A smooth transition would require aid from the British. In fact, Kenya had to request British military assistance to put down mutinies within their own armed forces as early as 1964. Economics, trade agreements, protectorate statuses would all have to be negotiated, and Jomo knew how British government worked. South African Peter Abrahams, a fellow Pan-Africanist from his time in London, said this of Kenyatta, Of all of the black men in the movement, he is the most relaxed, sophisticated, and westernized of the lot of us. He represented the Mau Mau, despite never believing in their cause. But he didn't only represent the Mau Mau. This gets into Jomo Kenyatta's absurdly false personality cult. He was incorrectly given credit or blame, depending upon which side of the divide you are on for the Mau Mau uprising. At the same time, he had spoken out against violence regularly since his release from detention. These contradictory ideas made him acceptable to both sides. His personality cult also benefited from his last name. Who better to serve as the father of the country than someone already named after the country? Of course, you know by now that Kenyatta is just a Kikuyu term for the fancy belt that Jomo preferred to wear. On the campaign trail, he repeatedly promised that he would not sack white civil servants. Several prominent white Kenyans even publicly endorsed Kenyatta's party, including Malcolm McDonald, the governor of Kenya in 1963, who said that Kenyatta was the wisest and perhaps strongest as well as the most popular potential prime ministers of the independent nation to be. The British had to be terrified at the time of transition. After all, Kenyatta was, in their mind, the leader of Mau Mau. They had spent nearly a decade using his name as a synonym for the concept of evil. 
but their fear of an ascendant Jomo Kenyatta proved to be just another one of the many faulty assumptions that plagued the British time in Kenya. In truth, President Kenyatta was the best thing that could have ever happened for the British. Instead of pursuing active land reform, Kenyatta's government seized land that had been abandoned in the inevitable white exodus. Rather than redistributing it as a form of reparations, Kenyatta had it sold to the highest bidders. You kind of have to have money to be the highest bidder. To have money means you have to have had power and privilege before the bidding began. This meant that most of the land auctioned was bought up by former loyalists and settlers, or members of Kenyatta's family and inner circle, as corruption would become the true mantra of this historical period. While his people celebrated Jamhuri Day, their leader expanded the power and influence of their previous oppressors. His desire to maintain the economic status quo made Kenya a safe investment for the West, and international finance was keen to pursue projects. The Washington Post was complimentary of Kenyatta's first few years, claiming that he had stabilized the nation and set them upon a path of growth. The newspaper reports that during those first crucial years, he prompted the establishment of a relatively free press and judiciary. He made it clear that whites who as settlers and businessmen had skills to teach black Kenyans were welcome to stay. He kept in check diversive ethnic strains among Kenya's 42 tribes. He unabashedly sought aid and investment from Western governments and businesses and he encouraged a free-wheeling capitalist ethic among black Kenyans that has led to the growth of a sizable upper and middle class. But those who know, know. His acceptance of corruption and graft made him a willing suitor to equally corrupt international businessmen who still viewed Kenya as a potential moneymaker. At the same time, Kenyatta was a true nationalist. Foreign-born citizens had to renounce their dual citizenship in order to remain in the country. His viewpoint on non-Kenyans may be best summed up by what Jomo told his daughter about the English wife Edna, whom he had abandoned decades earlier. He revealed to his daughter that the English are wonderful people to live with, in England. To stay in Kenya, Jomo required that you became a Kenyan in more than just name. You had to put your investment where your mouth was. As is common for many nations in their infancy, he adjusted the constitution as needed, using border skirmishes with Somalia as the impetus for what were blatant power grabs. For instance, in 1966, an amendment gave him the ability to order the detention of individuals without trial if he thought the security of the state were threatened. Ironically, this power would have made it easier for Governor Barring to detain and try Kenyatta himself in 1953. 
The irony was not lost at the first and only meeting between the two. Shockingly, the two had never had any contact during Barring's time as governor. Their first meeting occurred in October of 1965 in Kenyatta's new presidential offices. The conversation quickly came to the elephant in the room, the fact that Barring had rigged a trial and improperly jailed Kenyatta for seven years. Barring started the awkward conversation by pointing out that, by the way, I was sitting at that actual desk when I signed your detention order 20 years ago. I know, replied Kenyatta, if I'd been in your shoes at the time, I would have done exactly the same. Everyone in the room burst out laughing, and with everyone still chuckling, Jomo Kenyatta added, and I have myself signed a number of detention orders sitting right there too. One of the most famous of those orders would be the one that would outlaw the political party of his vice president and then challenger for the presidency, Odinga. Kenyatta's policies are best understood by looking through two distinct lenses or goals. First, he wanted to establish a national culture for the fledgling new nation. Remember that Kenyatta fell in love with the idea of pan-African nationalism when he was in England during World War II. There were a number of leaders that sought to unite the continent beneath their own vision. Secondly, he wanted his family to get filthy rich while doing it. Power can be intoxicating. And as Lord Acton famously revealed, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Kenyatta was more successful at the latter goal, as historian Robert Maxim suggests that no national culture emerged during the Kenyatta era as art, music, and literature flourished, but remained separated by distinct tribal or ethnic identities. We'll get to the legacy of corruption at a later point. Let's instead take a moment to examine what went right and what fell amiss during the Kenyatta presidency. Many of the biggest successes for Kenyatta arrive in the field of education. We have seen previously that throughout his life that education was incredibly important to him. He had run away from his family, literally shedding his family name for the chance to attend a Scottish missionary school. The only concession he managed to achieve while in London was the right to establish black African schools. He then went on to study at multiple European universities and finished with a PhD from the prestigious London School of Economics, after which he published numerous books on the Kikuyu people and their way of life. When he returned to Kenya after World War II, he became the president of Kenya's first teacher college. As president, he continued his life's work in education by promising to rid Kenya of ignorance. During his reign, all students had the option of attending school, even though it was not made compulsory. 
primary schools grew by 11.6%, and secondary schools by 80%. Today, 85% of Kenyan children are involved in primary education. At the time of his death, Kenya had established its first two universities, the University of Nairobi, and, you may have guessed it, Kenyatta University. He also brought in foreign-trained specialists in fields that they needed to grow quicker than they could produce themselves. Kenyatta's education policy doesn't receive a top grade, however, when you look through the lens of creating national culture. One of the easiest ways to accomplish such a task is through a strong nationalist history curriculum. In Kenya today, however, history is squeezed out by the study of geography and STEM fields, such as physics, chemistry, or biology. The Mau Mau atrocities-slash-trials are hardly taught, all of which results in students glorifying ethnicity over nationalism. Kenyatta's land reform policy became known as willing buyer, willing seller. The role of the government in Kenyatta's mind was to connect buyer to seller, rather than to correctly redistribute it. He ignored urgent Mau Mau demands for a return of their land, and repeatedly criticized the movement that he had supposedly led and been deified for. His consistent response was that if the Mau Mau wanted their land back, they would have to buy it just like everyone else. Europeans were encouraged to keep their land and to utilize their foreign connections to banks to buy more. His lack of land redistribution is so shocking that there have been long-standing rumors that he secretly met with the British before the presidential election and pledged behind closed doors to not seize European holdings in exchange for their support. Unfortunately, no one that was in the room where the deal supposedly happened would admit that it had happened. Partly as a consequence of maintaining and sometimes increasing the inequalities inherent in the settler system, There are more than 140,000 internal refugees in Kenya today. Critics of Kenyatta's land policies tried to force him to look in the mirror by deeming his policy as Kenyatta colonizing the rift. Economically, Kenyatta set a goal of creating black capitalism and made access to loans easier for industrial and commercial development for black-owned businesses. The utilization of the term black capitalism sent numerous signals. First, it showed that he was willing to enable the accumulation of wealth by any Kenyan. Secondly, it showed that he was a willing partner for the West in the midst of the Cold War. Corruption and patronage, which Kenyatta became directly associated with, however, will always hold back economic growth and create more economic inequality. This practice of granting loans to sycophants and supporters locked in the haves and have-nots, which is best described in a Jacobin magazine article 
that suggests Kenya is the land of 40 billionaires and 40 million beggars. One has to look no further for proof that the Kenyan halves are locked in at this point in time than the fact that the 2017 election was a choice between the son of Jomo Kenyatta and the son of Odinga, Kenyatta's first vice president. Kenya is still a land of deep inequalities where colonial-era country clubs sit against sprawling slums, where golf balls routinely ping off the roofs of makeshift tin shacks. This is a direct result of Kenyatta's Harambe movement, which literally means to pull together. Harambe called on citizens to raise private funds for local development. The goal was best viewed through Kenyatta's first lens, promoting nationalism by encouraging Kenyans to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and to seize the success that was waiting for them. Instead, these initiatives reinforced the second lens, creating a patronage system where elites had the power to decide when to dole out resources to the poor. An entirely new set of loyalists were created and rewarded access to foreign capital. This was the difference that led Odinga to split from Kenyatta, form a rival political party, and challenge his former running mate between terms. Odinga wanted a policy of socialism that would utilize the state rather than private citizens to control economic development. It was also why on March 2, 1945, that J.M. Karuki was murdered. Karuki, a popular politician who, like Kenyatta, was a former detainee, spoke out in favor of land reform and against corruption, claiming that every Kenyan man, woman, and child is entitled to a decent and just living, irrespective of his parentage, race, or creed, or his area of origin in this land. That was too much of a shot at Kenyatta, whose family would gain more than 500,000 acres of prime Kenyan real estate after he assumed the office of the presidency. Historians openly suspect that Karuki was killed on the behalf of the president. After any armed conflict, there is a rise in baby bumps. Individuals saying goodbye to loved ones, perhaps for the last time, tend to think with their heart rather than their pocketbooks. Kenya experienced a 4% population growth rate from 1962 to 1979, which happened to be the highest such rate in the world. The population explosion put a strain on the social service wing of the new government, and Kenya was the first African country south of the Sahara to have a national policy promoting family planning. The policy set up a number of planned parenting clinics throughout the country and leaned into education and ad campaigns to reduce the number of births. The policy was a failure, however, and should be viewed through the corruption lens. 
The Kenyatta regime was paid millions of dollars by the services, but did little to promote their actual use. Showing that they were willing to accept the money but not put in the work to enable the services to reach those who needed it most. Keep in mind that Jomo himself had been married four different times and produced children with a number of women. He wasn't ever in the running for father of the year. Kenyatta's vice president Odinga publicly said it was family planning measures that were unnecessary and Kenyatta forbade his name or photograph from being used in any family planning campaigns. During Kenyatta's rule, the average number of children born alive to a Kenyan woman rose from 7 to 7.9, leading Kenya to have the highest rate of natural population increase in the world. Note that the 7.9 figure is the average number of babies born. The child mortality rate is still pretty high today in Kenya. Kenyatta did increase access to healthcare enough to start a downward trend on these figures, however. In 1969, there were 154.8 deaths per 1,000 live births. And in 2018, it had been reduced to 41.1 deaths per 1,000 live births, a reduction of 113 deaths. Although there was clear improvement in the maternal health sector, Kenyatta failed to deliver on his promise of a free and universal medical system. Today, 70% of Kenyans continue to turn to traditional medicine for their primary care. Kenyatta had dismissed these traditional practitioners as charlatans, but was unable to convince his people to turn against them. Life expectancy rose from 45 before independence to 55 by the end of the 1970s. There isn't too much to Kenyatta's foreign policy record. He was too old to travel overseas regularly, and neither lens required much participation outside of Kenya's shores. As a nationalist, he wanted to focus within his nation. Through the lens of corruption, those with money were more than willing to come to him. As mentioned earlier, he clearly favored the West, although he claimed to be unaligned during the Cold War even coining the nonsense term, positive non-alignment. He took active steps in seizing illegal weapons inbound for Africa from China and expelled Chinese diplomatic teams. He also shut down the Soviet Lumbamba Institute that had operated as a stealth front for Soviet influence. He was also unabashedly pro-Israel even granting them safe passage and refueling for missions in which they hunted Nazis. The lasting effect of the Kenyatta years was to wrap as much wealth and power around his family that would last for generations. He consolidated control of the central government outlawed all other political parties, and terminated grants to local authorities that wouldn't do his bidding. 
The national press didn't look into any of this, as they fell for the propaganda of the conquering heroic father of the country's cult mentality. When political assassinations occurred, such as the killing of Pio Pinto in 1965, Kenyatta would condemn the act, but then use it to grab more power for himself. This worked despite the fact that the British intelligence services went public with their belief that the murder had been orchestrated by Kenyatta's personal bodyguard. Another political murder attributed to Kenyatta's desire to remain in power was the death of the U.S. favored Tom Boya. There are too many political enemies of Jomo Kenyatta that met an early death to call it a coincidence. Riots consumed much of the country following the killing of Tom Boya, and Kenyatta took this opportunity to restart Kukuyu oathing traditions, this time requiring an oath to swear loyalty directly to Jomo Kenyatta himself. Those who reported the story were deported for their journalistic endeavors, but the word of the new oath seeped out into the mainstream. Under widespread protests, the oathing ceremonies were terminated after only three months, a rare time that Kenyatta the dictator was forced to step back from his intended action. Father Time is undefeated, and even for Kenyatta, the end had to come at some point. Selected as president for the first time at the age of 73, Jomo Kenyatta went on to win the presidency four consecutive times, what we in America call pulling an FDR. Keep in mind, though, that it is significantly easier to win elections when you outlaw all challengers. His longevity in power, all the way till the age of 86, was marred by a number of health setbacks. His first mild stroke was in 1966, and he suffered a second in 1968. He had gout and heart problems that he kept secret from the public. By 1970, it is reported that he was becoming increasingly senile, and that the government was run in his name by his family and those who benefited from his rule. By 1975, it was abundantly clear that he had for all expressed purposes ceased to actively govern. In 1977, he had several further strokes and heart attacks and died in 1978 of a heart attack. His funeral purposefully mirrored that of Winston Churchill in order to project an image of their country as a modern state rather than one incumbent on tradition. To illustrate how close England remained to her former colony, Queen Elizabeth II sent her son and heir Charles to the event. Kenyatta's vice president, Daniel Arap Moy, took over and emphasized his loyalty to Kenyatta, saying that, I followed and was faithful to him until his last day, even when his closest friends forsook him. Moy would go on to rule Kenya as a dictator until his death at the age of 95. 
His choice to emphasize his loyalty to Kenyatta showed that the personality cult of Mazi, the grand old man, had survived even unto death. The West helped to continue the myth of Kenyatta, with Pope Paul VI and the South Korean government giving him awards posthumously. But still, there were others that saw Kenyatta's life wasted. Historian A.B. Asenso argued that in his life story, Kenyatta had a great deal in common with Ganya's Nukmra. Kenyatta, like Nukmra, was remembered for initiating the discourse and process that plotted the narrative of African freedom. But at the same time, both were often remembered for their careless institution of presidential rule, one-party dictatorship, ethnicity, and cronyism. They are remembered both for making the dream of African independence a reality and for their invention of post-colonial authoritarianism and Marxist Nugi Wa Thione stated that Kenyatta was a black Moses who had been called by history to lead his people to the promised land of no exploitation, no oppression, but who failed to rise to the occasion. We'll continue to examine the legacy of this Black Moses in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.